The first time the phrase serial killer was used in connection with women killed in the Frankfurt section of Philadelphia was in January 1989, after the death of 30-year-old Teresa Sirtino. At least that was the first time I could find the phrase serial killer used publicly about a man who was called the Frankfurt Slasher. That was a little over three years after the first victim, Helen Patton, was murdered in 1985. Including Helen, five women were murdered before Teresa, and she wasn't the slasher's last victim. Two more women lost their lives at the hands of a man who brutally, violently murdered women. Between August 1985 and September 1990, the Frankfurt slasher killed eight or nine women between the ages of 28 and 74. In May 1990, someone was arrested, tried, and convicted for one murder attributed to the slasher. But I struggle to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that man was at all connected to these murders. Frankfurt has a long, rich history in the city of Philadelphia. It was founded in 1682 by the Quakers soon after William Penn set foot on these shores. What we know today as Frankfurt Avenue was called Frankfurt Pike a few hundred years ago. It was a trail cut by William Penn himself between Philadelphia and New York, which passed his homestead in Bucks County. Frankfurt is home to an elevated train, which opened almost 100 years ago in 1922. This train made it easy for travelers to get from Upper Darby, a suburb just outside West Philadelphia, to Northeast Philly. It was a bit of a marvel 100 years ago, but today the Frankfurt L is associated with crime, not necessarily on the train, but the neighborhoods around North and Northeast Philadelphia that are stuck underneath. The Frankfurt neighborhood used to be one of the best shopping destinations in Philly, but like many locations, especially north of Center City, Philadelphia, white flight left neighborhoods fighting to sustain themselves and crack hit the streets in the mid-80s. When people left, many businesses left with them. There are still businesses today all along Frankfurt Avenue near and under the L train, but where there were destination shops before, today the stores are filled with businesses like Five Below, bars, and pawn shops. Sections of Frankfurt aren't that different from Kensington, which we talked about at length when I shared the story of the Kensington Strangler. It's filled with families who've lived there for generations, as well as people who may be newer to the area, hoping to see the neighborhood thrive again as it did decades ago. Frankfurt has its fair share of crime. Street crime, stores that are abandoned, and ones that aren't are sometimes hit by crime. The mid to late 80s in Philadelphia offered a trifecta of serial killers. Between 1986 and 1987, our city was plagued with not one, but two. Harrison Marty Graham, the subject of the first episode of Twisted Philly, and Gary Heidnick, a fiend we talked about in episode 26. Marty Graham's crimes were discovered when his landlord tried to evict him but couldn't get into the bedroom of Marty's apartment because he'd nailed it shut from the outside. The property owner's nephew was sent in to inspect and saw through a keyhole a set of legs peeking out under the bed. Shortly thereafter, police discovered the remains of seven women hidden in closets under piles of trash and stuffed in a duffel bag on the roof of his apartment building. Marty Graham was originally sentenced to death. Then his death sentence was overturned in 2002 when the Pennsylvania Supreme Court deemed it unconstitutional to put people to death whom were suffering from mental health disorders. His sentence was commuted to life. Gary Heidnick is one of six serial killers about whom the character of Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs is based. Gary's quirk was the pit in the ground, although the one he dug in his basement wasn't anywhere near as deep as what we saw in the movies, but it was so much more depraved. 
Gary kept women chained in his basement. He'd abducted six women in 1986, killed two of them, and by the time Josefina Rivera escaped and called the police, three women were still restrained in Heidnick's house of horrors. Gary was sentenced to death and killed by lethal injection in July 1989, almost 30 years ago. And as you've heard me say many times, Gary Heidnick was the last person on death row to actually be put to death in the state of Pennsylvania. It was after the arrest of each of these men, after their trials and sentences, that Philadelphia police recognized the man killing women in the Frankfurt section of Philadelphia as a serial killer, although there were enough similarities between the first four victims to link their murders. Did they simply not want to admit there was a third man hunting and killing women in our city around the same time as Heidnick and Graham? Women were being killed in Frankfurt, just like in Tioga, where Gary Heidnick lived, and in north-central Philadelphia, where Marty Graham lived. Each of these areas are within just a few miles from one another. Marty Graham killed sex workers and women addicted to drugs. Gary Heidnick abducted women he believed were suffering from intellectual disabilities. Some were, others weren't, but they were women he believed to be inconsequential. The Frankfurt Slasher killed women who lived alone. Some were homeless, others weren't. Many of them were called barflies for their near-constant presence in bars along Frankfurt Avenue under the L train. And what about the man who was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Carol Dowd, the Slasher's seventh victim? Leonard Christopher was in jail. He hadn't yet gone to trial when the eighth victim was murdered. And yet he did go to trial. He was convicted for Carol's murder, that last victim, Michelle Denher, well, it was as if her death in September 1990 didn't matter. Someone was going to jail, and we could assume that someone killed almost all the slasher victims, even if it wasn't overtly stated. The Frankfurt slasher destroyed lives. He destroyed lives of women in Philadelphia and the life of Leonard Christopher, and all these murders are considered unsolved. There is so much to unpack in this story, so much to understand, and new evidence that just hit the news in Philadelphia this week about this 30-year-old case. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast, True Crime haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. Officially, the cases of the eight women murdered by the Frankfurt Slasher... This guy only goes for weak women who are alone and take them home. I'm really not worried about no killer. He only picks on people who are all messed up. Do or die, me or you. I'm not afraid to kill nobody. He's a classic serial signature killer because he left his mark on all the bodies. He would probably cozy up to him, get him out of the barn, and do what he's going to do. Yeah, it was her, yeah. The eight murder cases remain open and unsolved. There were so many attributes about the victims of the Frankfurt Slasher that on one hand made it seem almost impossible not to realize there was a serial killer stalking women in the Frankfurt section of Philadelphia. And on the other hand, their differences probably contributed to the delays in police linking these murders to one another. It was the death of 30-year-old Teresa Sirtino, who lived on Arrett Street, just a few blocks from the Frankfurt Transportation Center, that finally had Philadelphia police publicly discussing the possibility these deaths were related. All of the slasher's victims were white. All were women. 
all were stabbed multiple times. In almost all cases, according to Philadelphia Medical Examiner Paul Hoyer, the first few blows would have been enough to at least incapacitate his victims, if not kill them. Everything beyond the first five stab wounds was overkill. It was someone whom enjoyed inflicting pain and degrading his victims. Some women were stabbed more than others. Some were found inside their home while others had been killed outside and left to the elements. Teresa was 30, but many of the victims of the Frankfurt Slasher were in their 50s and 60s. One victim was even older. All the victims of the man known as the Frankfurt Slasher were stabbed. Most of them were left either nude or partially naked, and many of them had been sexually assaulted. The varying age ranges between victims furthered the belief these crimes may not have been linked. The fact some were stabbed more than others, a few left with wounds like something out of the Black Dahlia case, that also initially led police to believe there may have been multiple killers. But by the time Teresa Ciertino was murdered, the medical examiner was able to identify patterns in the stab wounds of five women who'd been killed between August 1985 and January 1989. Yet try as you might, you won't find anyone in law enforcement, the medical examiner's office, anyone in a position of authority in Philadelphia who will say definitively the eight women killed over a three and a half year period in the Frankfurt section of Philadelphia were killed by the same person. They'll say more than two for sure are linked. And I wonder if that was the killer's intention. We'll come back to Teresa and the women killed after her in a little bit. But for now, let's start at the beginning. 52-year-old Helen Patton lived in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. If you're not local, it might sound like she lived far away from Philadelphia, but it's a pretty easy trip from Bucks County, which is north of the city, to the Frankfurt section of Philly. Helen came into Frankfurt to visit the Golden Bar. Most of the women killed by the Frankfurt Slasher hung out at the Golden Bar or Happy Tap or even both. Once you get to know the crowd, the bartenders, the locals, a neighborhood bar starts to feel like home, even if it isn't in the neighborhood where you live. Helen's body was found near Frankfurt Avenue on August 26, 1985, in a septa maintenance yard. That isn't necessarily when she was killed, though. The last time anyone saw Helen alive was about a week earlier, according to her estranged husband. Helen Patton was stabbed over 40 times. It seemed like a rage killing to stab someone so much over and over and over. Her body had been positioned. Whomever killed Helen went out of their way to leave her remains in a state of degradation. About four months later, on January 2nd in 1986, 68-year-old Anna Carroll was found murdered in her apartment. Like Helen, Anna was stabbed, although not as many times as Helen, but it was still brutal. Anna's clothes were missing from the waist down, and she'd been posed. Anna Carroll lived in South Philadelphia. That's like the opposite end of the city in a completely different police district. There was a connection between Helen and Anna. It was the Golden Bar, a place locals referred to as Goldies. There are tons of South Philly bars Anna could have visited. She didn't have to go to Frankfurt to grab a beer. But like I said before, your bar is your bar, whether it's within walking distance or across town. It's where you feel comfortable, where you feel like your family and you know everyone. Even if you don't know them, you know them. Anna Carroll was discovered when a neighbor noticed her open front door. The next murder didn't happen for almost a year, and the victim was discovered on Christmas Day in 1986. 
Crimes like these are horrific any day of the week, any day of the year. But for some reason, learning that 74-year-old Susan Alsef was killed on Christmas, it feels worse. Maybe it's also her age, which wasn't that much older than Anna. No one deserves to die, no matter their age or gender, their race, where they live, or even what they did before they were killed. But for me, hearing about violence to children or older persons always feels worse. Although it was almost a year after Anna's death, Susan was discovered the same way. Someone saw her open front door, went in to see if she was okay, and found her body. Susan Olsif lived in Port Richmond, which is just a few miles from Frankfurt. It's much closer than where Anna Carroll lived on Rittner Street in South Philly. It was Susan's death that led police to discover the connection between these three women, the Golden Bar, because Susan was also a Goldie's regular. Although there'd been almost a year between Anna and Susan's deaths, less than two weeks later, a fourth woman was found, 28-year-old Jean Durkin. Jean was homeless and frequently spent the night in shop doorways near Goldie's Bar in the 5200 block of Frankfurt Avenue. Her body was left outside in a lot on Pratt Street. According to police, the location of Jean Durkin's body was just a block or two from the spot where Helen Patton was found about a year and a half earlier. Jean was stabbed multiple times, and it was even worse than Helen's murder. She'd been stabbed over 70 times. For what? As if these murders weren't senseless on their own, pretty much like all murders, how do you do that to someone? How do you stab someone over and over that many times? Jean had been assaulted and was positioned in the same way as the previous victims. By this point, not only to me during my research, but also to many Philadelphians who lived through these crimes in the late 80s, it was obvious the city had another serial killer. Yet when I read countless reports from 1985 through the early 90s about this story, so many times police and other officials repeatedly said they couldn't confirm these crimes were related. Here's one example. The Philadelphia medical examiner at the time, Paul Hoyer, told the Philadelphia Inquirer the frequency of the attacks seemed way too low for a serial killer. He was quoted as saying, it almost makes me think they might not be related. Serial killers have been known to strike every couple of weeks, perhaps even more than that. Really? Where are you living, Paul? That's an uninformed assessment about people who murder other people that serial killers are out there every few days driving around looking for their next victim. Maybe some of them are, but we know of so many cases where killers went years between crimes. It's unfair of me to judge these men who were trying to solve multiple homicides. Not only the murders in Frankfurt, but murders every day, gun violence every day, plus Gary Heidnick and Marty Graham. I get it. We know a lot more about people who kill multiple times today than we did 30 years ago. And sometimes I wonder if we really know as much as we think. Four victims in a year and a half, all stabbed to death, all at least partially naked, posed, and some sexually assaulted. On January 20th, 1987, a number of neighborhood residents held a vigil near the Frankfurt station. They carried candles and spoke about the women who'd been taken from them. Did their presence scare off the killer because there were no more stabbing deaths that were linked to those first four women for almost two more years? 
In November 1988, the slasher struck again. 66-year-old Margaret Vaughn was found on November 11th in the vestibule of the apartment building where she lived in Frankfurt. She'd been stabbed almost 30 times. Everyone here knew Marge. She was very nice, very friendly. She always drank Schaefer draft beer. Marge would come and go mm, practically every day. She'd bring some of these people she met at bars back to her apartment. I always felt like she was taking a big chance. Margaret had been evicted earlier that day. She'd been seen in Goldie's later that evening and then was seen talking to a man people recognized but didn't know. According to a bartender at Goldie's, the night before her death, Margaret Vaughn spent some time at the bar with a man who could have been in his 40s or 50s. He was white, wore glasses, had a round, doughy face, and some said he walked with a limp. This doesn't mean he was her killer, but people who spent considerable time at Goldie's and the other bars along Frankfurt or Bridge Street near the L believed the killer was probably a fellow customer from the bar. Victim number six was Teresa Ciertino, who we talked about earlier in this episode. According to police, neighbors in Teresa's apartment building heard loud noises coming from her apartment the night before her body was discovered. But I'm guessing they didn't bother to call the cops while the commotion was going on. They did tell their landlord, who discovered Teresa when he went to check her apartment. Her door was closed but unlocked, and inside was Teresa, who'd been stabbed repeatedly. Teresa was killed just about two months after Margaret Vaughn on January 19th in 1989. She lived and worked just a few blocks from Goldie's on Errett Street. Everything came back to Goldie's. There was another big gap in the murders between early January 1989 and April 1990. Early in the morning on April 29th, a police officer patrolling the Frankfurt neighborhood found the battered body of 46-year-old Carol Dowd. Carol was stabbed repeatedly. Her injuries were some of the more severe of the slasher victims, similar to Helen Patton, who was killed in 1985. In addition to the stab wounds, Carol was severely beaten. She was naked like so many of the other victims. Her body was found in an alley behind Neiman's Seafood Shop in the 4500 block of Frankfurt Avenue, just a block or so away from Goldie's Bar. Carol's family talked with Philadelphia reporters about her life before the murder. In her early 20s, she'd been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and she spent some time in her adult life for treatment for her mental illness. Sometimes she'd lived on her own, but she'd been attacked, so she'd recently been living at a community facility before her death. Her brother said she'd been doing really well in that space. She enjoyed where she lived. Yes, she had troubles, but they didn't expect her to die like this. No one expects their loved ones to die at the hands of a brutal, sadistic killer. In the days after the murder, police questioned the staff at Neiman's Seafood Shop. One of the people they questioned was 38-year-old Leonard Christopher. Leonard worked at the fish market and lived in an apartment across the street. He actually saw the police on his way into work the morning they found Carol Dowd's body, and according to Leonard, he thought the police were there for a burglary, because burglaries were pretty common in the shops along Frankfurt Avenue. When police told him they were there investigating a murder, Leonard Christopher mentioned he knew one of the women who'd been killed in 1987, Margaret Vaughn. Leonard may have referred to her as Marge because that's how everyone knew her. His admitted association to an earlier victim made Leonard an instant suspect. Here's the thing about that neighborhood and lots of small neighborhoods, not only in Philly, but other parts of the country. It's condensed. The stores are all so very close together. The houses are close together. Everything is a row house. Everything is attached. 
You know the guy who picks up his dry cleaning every Friday after work, not because you know him, but because you see him every Friday after work. You recognize him. You might even say hello, and he may say hello back because he recognizes you. You know Marge, the older woman who hangs out at Goldie's or the Happy Tap. You recognize her as she walks the few blocks up the street from her apartment to the bar and back again. Maybe she passes your shop a few times a day, and maybe she waves, maybe you wave back, but that doesn't mean you killed her. Police quickly investigated Leonard Christopher, who looked absolutely nothing like the description of a 40 or 50-something white man with glasses. Leonard was black, trim, and looked younger than his 38 years. He didn't have much of an alibi for the night of Carol Dowd's murder. He was home alone, which to the police meant he really could have been anywhere. Then there was conflicting witness testimony as the police started questioning other people in the neighborhood. One sex worker said she saw Leonard with Carol in the alley behind Neiman's where he worked at around 1 a.m. Another one said she didn't see anyone. She heard a woman scream. Someone else claimed they saw Carol at Goldie's, then they saw her on the street with a middle-aged white man wearing a hat and glasses. Leonard's landlord vouched for him. People who knew him vouched for him. But it didn't make a difference. On May 4, 1990, Leonard Christopher was arrested and jailed for the murder of Carol Dowd. He was charged with burglary, although even police said when they found Carol's purse on the ground near her body, it still had cash in it. And he was also charged with abuse of a corpse. I can't say that there's no connection. There are similarities with the others. We are looking at the fingerprints and the other physical evidence to see if he is the murderer in these other cases. But at this time, that's not the case. Then an eighth victim was murdered, while Leonard was in jail. Four months after Leonard Christopher was arrested and held without bail, 30-year-old Michelle Denher, who was also known as Michelle Martin, was found in her apartment on Arrett Street. Michelle had been stabbed more than 20 times. Michelle was known around the neighborhood as Crazy Michelle. Sometimes she would barricade herself in her apartment. Other times people saw her throwing things out her apartment window. Michelle Denher lived on the same street as Teresa Ciertino. She knew Jean Durkin. She drank at Goldie's. There was no way her murder wasn't connected to the prior murders. And yet, even though it happened, while Leonard Christopher was in jail, jail is where he stayed. In December 1990, Leonard Christopher stood trial for the murder of Carol Dowd and only the murder of Carol Dowd, which made absolutely no fucking sense because Carol's murder was believed to have been linked to the other murders. So if police believed Leonard killed Carol Dowd, then even without stating it verbatim, they had to believe he killed the other women. Yet one was killed while he was in prison, and none of that mattered. The details of Michelle Denher's death were never shared with the jury in Leonard's trial. During Leonard Christopher's murder trial, a U.S. postal worker who frequented the same bars and shops in Frankfurt as almost everyone else in this tale testified he saw Leonard talking with Carol at the Happy Tap Bar just a block or so from Goldie's. Greg Stapp claimed he saw Leonard leave the bar not long after Carol, the night she died. He also testified on numerous occasions he saw Leonard Christopher carry knives, something that no one else testified to, no one else ever mentioned. And the fact that Leonard worked in a fish market scaling fish, no doubt the man used knives every day. But when Gregory Sapp told the police what he saw at the Happy Tap the night before Carol was murdered, he was presented with a photograph of Carol Dowd, and he was unable to say with certainty if that was the woman he actually saw. 
Leonard Christopher told his boss he witnessed a murder, what he later realized was Carol Dowd's murder. He was afraid the killer saw him and would now come for him. What Leonard saw was a middle-aged white man with Carol Dowd. Leonard's boss, Jason Fang, testified about this at his trial, but she also said she thought Leonard seemed interested in the crime and seemed paranoid. Whether it was because he witnessed a murder or he committed the murder himself is hard to say, but there was zero evidence linking Leonard Christopher to Carol Dowd's murder. There was no forensic evidence at the crime scene that put Leonard in that alley with Carol. There was no evidence from the murder on Leonard's clothing or in his apartment. Police talked about a drop of blood found on a pair of pants, but again, he worked at a fish market. It would be surprising if most of his clothes didn't have blood stains and other marks on them. During her closing argument, the district attorney told the jury evidence against Leonard Christopher was circumstantial, but she felt it was enough for them to find him guilty and convict him of the murder of Carol Dowd. And the jury agreed, because on December 12, 1990, they found Leonard Christopher guilty of first-degree murder. They could have given him a death sentence, and in 1990, it may have been carried out, but they didn't. The jury sentenced Leonard Christopher to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and he eventually died in jail. I was railroaded. I didn't kill Carol Dowd. I did not even know Carol Dowd. I was implicated by prostitutes, that is, pipers that the police put up. The Northeast stalker is still out there killing people. Leonard continually professed his innocence. He didn't know Carol Dowd. He may have known her from seeing her around the neighborhood, but he didn't know her. He didn't spend time with her, and he claimed he certainly didn't kill her. In August 1995, Leonard Christopher was denied a new trial. His attorney argued the other murders were believed to have been committed by the same killer, and if that were the case, then that meant Leonard could not have killed Carol Dowd. Unfortunately, Philadelphia Common Pleas Court Judge Paul Ribner denied the appeal and ruled the evidence from other killings should not have been included in Leonard Christopher's trial. If there was an investigation into any other suspect, I couldn't find it. Police did question a man who fit the description of this middle-aged white man who wore glasses and walked with a limp. Sometimes he wore a hat. Hell, there were even sketches of this man that were handed out around Frankfurt. Apparently, this man left the Philadelphia area after the murder of Michelle Denher and died soon thereafter. What's crazy about releasing this episode this week is just a few days ago, our local NBC affiliate announced DNA testing is being conducted in the Frankfurt Slasher case. I'd already planned this episode for this week back in January, so the timing is crazy. NBC reporter Greg Spencer and Marissa Bluestein from the Pennsylvania Innocence Project re-examined the files in Leonard Christopher's case. They found inconsistencies in witness testimony, and they said DNA that was taken from that middle-aged white guy is now being tested in comparison to DNA that was recovered from some crime scenes during the slasher killings. Bluestein says investigators found no blood on Christopher, no logical murder weapon, and no motive. Just a completely out of the blue, totally psychotic act by a man who never exhibited anything of that nature before. Bluestein says that final murder was proof Christopher was not the serial killer and raises deep doubt about the Dowd conviction. Not only was Ms. Dowd never given justice because her murder was never 
found and caught, the other eight women, those murders are still unsolved. And as for that self-proclaimed minister who was the slasher suspect, investigators say he died of natural causes shortly after police questioning. But detectives did take a DNA sample from him. A sample that we've learned is currently being compared to old DNA from slasher victims as a way to finally solve this 30-year-old killing spree. Reporting in Just like the case of the Kensington Strangler in 2010, there was a victim thought to have been connected to the Frankfurt slasher, but likely wasn't. In 1987, soon after the murder of Jean Durkin, a young woman named Catherine Jones, who worked as a waitress in a Frankfurt Avenue restaurant, was found murdered in her home in the Northern Liberties section of Philadelphia. Catherine wasn't stabbed. She hadn't been assaulted. Her death, while tragic, was very different than the other eight women who were murdered as a result of brutal stabbings between 1985 and 1990. Catherine is the reason some people say there were nine slasher victims, while others say there were eight. One of my research sources was a feature in the Philadelphia City Paper, which actually went out of print in 2015. It was written in 2005 by Dwayne Swierzynski. And Dwayne, if you're listening, I apologize if I butchered your last name. It was a really fantastic piece. What struck me weren't the details of the slasher killings. It was Dwayne's perspective as someone who grew up in Frankfurt. Someone who, as a kid in the 70s, was mesmerized by all the shops and the people and the pace of Frankfurt, the constant coming and going. In Dwayne's telling, it sounded exciting, and it just drew so many people to the neighborhood. There's some sort of pull in Frankfurt. Even though it doesn't look like much today, all you have to do is look at the buildings. There was something here. It was once a glorious area. The history is incredible down here. Dwayne mentioned being in high school during the slasher murders, as was I. He also talked about the changes in his neighborhood, the work that happened in the 90s to create a resurgence in art and culture and commerce in Frankfurt, and how so far it hasn't been sustainable. I thought Dwayne made a really excellent point in his feature. He talked about how the slasher didn't bring down Frankfurt. Everything that happened in Frankfurt made that neighborhood a place that would breed people like the slasher. I think the same thing can be said about Tioga and North Philly, where Gary Heidnick and Marty Graham played on their victims, and Kensington over 20 years later, where Antonio Rodriguez became known as the Kensington Strangler. We've visited these same neighborhoods so many times, and sadly, we'll walk those streets again in future episodes. Before I go, I'd like to offer some very special thank yous to Heather, Laura, Jeffrey, Daniel, and Katie for the voiceover work you heard in this episode. Thank you all so very much for helping bring this story to life. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters. <laughs>